So, Father, this day as we pray for uh, this week, hope-filled discipleship, Father, we want to tune our attention to you right now. And remember that we're your disciples. And so we want to offer up to you the areas of our lives that need to be reformed, that need to be changed, where we need to practice your lordship, where we're tempted to run our lives rather than allow you and your word to guide our lives. Maybe it's the way we use our language that you're not fully lord over. Maybe it's the way we distribute and spend our money. Uh, Maybe it's how we think about sex. Maybe we're more um, prone to entertainment than we are to break away from entertainment and encourage somebody through a text, a phone call, a, a meal, an email, a visit. Uh, maybe we haven't brought uh, under your lordship and in discipleship how we think about the government, how we think about culture. So right now in our own lives, wherever we're rubbing against your kingdom principles or wherever we're asking and, and knowing that we're not fully obedient to you, or knowing a place in our lives where we, we know you've been calling us to do more evangelism, to be a little bit more risky, to be a, a little bit um, more loving to our neighbors. As we pray for hope-filled discipleship, we pray for ourselves that we would become disciples of you in every area of our lives. And Father, now we pray they would be, as this core value says, it would be hope-filled that we wouldn't be given to despair, but instead we as Christians at Mitchell Road would be repositories of hope uh, that can measure out to this world that lives in such despair and angst and fear the fact that we're going to be okay and that you're going to get us home and wipe every tear from our eyes. So Father, make us your disciples and help us then to disciple other, not from a holier than thou. We have it figured out and other people don't, but more journeying together, more one sojourner to another, a beggar to another beggar. Help us to think right now about the people in our lives that just need a a guiding hand. Maybe it's a younger guy or girl in the industry we're in who just started out of college and we've got years of experience. And we could teach them how to do this work with integrity. Maybe it's a a freshman at the school that we're in who doesn't know how to be a Christian in college or a Christian in high school and, and we can help guide them. Maybe it's a a young mom or a young dad, maybe it's somebody who's on the the road of singleness like we are. Father, I pray that wherever we are, we would look for people that we can disciple and that we can guide, that we would make disciples of all nations. And uh, we pray, Father, these things in your name. Amen. This text uh, addresses so many questions that you and I have about prayer. 
Uh, for example, it's going to talk about what we do with religious freedom. It's going to talk about what we do when our prayers aren't answered. It's going to talk about what do we do when we feel like we can't pray. It's going to talk about the assumption that so many of us think we don't need to pray or assume we don't need to pray because we've got it all figured out. It's going to talk about weaponized prayer. It's going to talk about living as Christians in a post-Christian culture. What do we do when we live in a culture where the principles of Christianity are not only not valued, but we're persecuted for them? And so this text is going to go to so much as we continue to talk through over these period of months, uh, this sermon series of learning how to pray together. Let me read the whole text and then I'll get right to it with three points. Daniel chapter six, verse one. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom... Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account so that the king may suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, Establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before God. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and they said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into a den of lions. The, t- the king declared to Daniel, May your God, who you serve continually, deliver you. This is the word of the Lord. Three quick points. Number one, pray. Pray when you believe you don't need to. Let's talk very quickly about Daniel's life. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Uh, Maybe you don't know the story of Daniel. Let me just give you a little bit of a background here. Daniel was in exile. Uh, You know this from going through uh, the Bible overview that uh, in 722 BC, the Assyrian uh, army captured the Israel army in the north, took them into exile. 586 BC, uh, the Babylonian army captured the southern kingdom, which we call Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and took them into exile. And so Daniel grew up as a little Hebrew boy but found himself in exile in Babylon. And there he had to learn to live as a Christian, honoring God in a culture that didn't value his values at all. So Daniel was about how to do that. You see in chapter one, he said, I don't want to eat all that fatty meat. I don't want to eat all that, drink all that wine. Give me just the fruits and vegetables and see if I can live this way. And then he started to interpret dreams and he kind of went all the way through these first couple chapters trying to figure out how do I live as a Christian in this culture in a faithful way. And he rose to fame. He had a ton of abilities. He had a ton of influence. He didn't stay away from the things of the Babylonians. He would have become very good in Babylonian philosophy. He would have understood their academic life. He would have understood their governmental system. He would have understood how to work and move within the culture. He would have understood all of those things. He rose to the place where he was about to be, as it says in verse 3, set over the entire kingdom, the exile, the little Hebrew boy, is the one who's going to run the whole kingdom. And so, of course, all the satraps and the officials were ticked off. After all, they would say, we're Babylonian of Babylonians. That guy's a Hebrew. How is he going to be prime minister over the whole country? My dad was a satrap. My dad's dad was a satrap. We are all a part of this system. How is he going to be over the whole thing? It doesn't make any sense at all. By the way, just by way of segue, what's a satrap? We should probably define that. There's counselors, there's officials, there's all of these things. Satraps were basically, there's 120 of them, and they were basically managers, magistrates. And when the king would do something, they would take that law, get on their camels, and they would go spread it all around the kingdom. This is what, because Babylonian kingdom was pretty large, this is what the king has decided. And so they would do that all the way across the kingdom. Well, they had a very, very specific persecution against Daniel. It was a targeted attack because they didn't want him rising anymore. And they had the thought, we've got to get this guy out of here. How do we do it? We know he prays and he always prays. We've been watching him for a year. He leaves his window open. Everybody can see him. He does it three times a day. So if we can make a rule 
that's enforceable, an injunction that the king signs that nobody's allowed to pray, then we can throw him into the lion's den, and then one of us Babylonians will get that job, not that Hebrew guy. Let's get him out of here. He's a dirty exile anyway. And so that's what they did. It's interesting that what they say in verse 7 is they basically say, let's just all be secular. Uh, let's not have anybody worship any God. Let's just all agree together. No religion of any type is going to get involved. Let's all be secular together. Daniel's response was to do the same thing that he'd always done. Verse 10, he goes to his house. He opens the window for a breeze, not for a show. He goes there at lunch. He gets his lettuce wrap in his hummus, and he sits down, and he prays. And he goes back to work. He comes back at 5 o'clock. He opens his window. He gets his lettuce wrap in his hummus. And the only reason I'm using those is because I have no idea what they actually ate in Babylon, but it seems like it's fitting. He gets his little snack. He brews his cup of tea. He sits down, and he prays again. He goes about his faithful presence that he's always done time and time again. It doesn't change his plan at all. To live in a post-Christian world, James Davidson Hunter, he's a professor at the UVA, argues that we have to learn how to be a subversive, faithful presence. Here's what Hunter says. Hunter says, to enact a vision of human flourishing based on the qualities of life that Jesus modeled will invariably challenge the given structures of the social order. In other words, if we live as a Christian, eventually the social order is eventually going to be challenged and say, wait, you're not playing by the same rules that we're playing by. In this light, there is no true leadership without putting at one's risk, at risk one's time, wealth, reputation, and position. Daniel did exactly what he needed to do to honor God and to still work within this culture that he works within. Now, I've entitled this, first point, pray when you believe you don't need to. Because here's one of the barriers to prayer. We feel like we don't need to. I can handle it myself. I mean, I'll pray if, if it's a Hail Mary and it gets to the point where I, I'm completely out of options. I'll throw the Hail Mary pass in the form of a prayer. But most of us feel pretty self-sufficient. Most of us tend to lead towards control. Uh, most of us kind of want towards pride. Most of us think, I don't want to be needy. I, I don't have to ask for help. I, I'm a pretty self-sufficient guy. I've got a lot of abilities myself. Daniel could have said that in spades. Daniel had so many abilities. He had so much influence. He had so many intellectual powers. He was able to rise politically to the top of the kingdom. If anybody could say, I don't need to pray, it would be Daniel. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, all of those years of Daniel praying three times a day, all of those years of going to the Lord in prayer is what made him successful and what made him react, not in a way that we typically react. If this happened today to us, you know how we would react? I can't believe it. We throw up our hands. They're taking our rights. We'd call a news agency. We'd quit on Twitter, which is an absolute dumpster fire, by the way. Have you been on Twitter lately? I'm on there to watch you, just so you know. Uh, but the amount of 
uh, obscene things that Christians say, ju so judgmental and over the top. It's, it's a, I have to take a shower and read the Psalms after I am on Twitter for 30 minutes. It's un unbelievable. But so much vitriol that comes into there from Christians, not non-Christians, from Christians who just react by way of rage. But here Daniel has learned that prayer is just not a reaction to something that's come in our lives. It's preemptive, preparing our hearts, tuning our hearts three times a day to the spiritual algorithms of who we're made for and why we're made. And so when this happens, Daniel was able to respond in this beautiful, faithful presence of just going back time and time again to his room and praying. Brings to the second point, which is this, pray when you think you can't. Because by all uh, means, it would look like Daniel can't pray at this point, like, and, he, and he shouldn't, you know? And, and so sometimes we think pray, we can't pray right now. But Daniel, interestingly enough, do you know what his name means? My son is named after Daniel. Uh, both this Daniel, uh, my father-in-law, and a great friend of mine, trifecta. So we named him Daniel times three. No, we didn't. We, we named him just Daniel. But Daniel means, uh, and I did think when we named my son Daniel, Elizabeth and I did think, I think I'll get through this life without too much persecution. I'm not sure he will. We'll see. We'll see how culture changes. But the name Daniel, it means God is my judge. In other words, I'm not going to worry about anything else, about how other people view me, about how this culture views me. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to honor him. And he goes, and he gets on his knees. Now, let me say a couple things about verse 10. He went to his house. He opened the windows to the upper chamber towards Jerusalem. Here he is in exile, longing for his home, but yet exiled. Opens the windows to get a breeze. It's not being flashy. To get a breeze, and he gets on his knees. If you struggle with prayer, let me suggest this, and everybody does. So let's just assume for the rest of our lives that everybody in this room is going to have to continually struggle and battle with prayer, okay? If you're struggling, one thing you can do, and it's one thing that I do, is change your posture a little bit. Uh, get on your knees, because there is something incredibly humbling about that. Uh, anytime people enter into the presence of a king, they bow or they curtsy, or in the medieval times, they get on their knees. Why? You get on your knees and you would bare your neck so that if the king wanted to at that moment, he could just lop your head off and be done with it. And so you're submitting yourself to the wishes of the king at that moment. There is something humbling, maybe besides your bed, before you go to bed, about getting on your knees and saying, Jesus, I completely submit to you. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just you need to go for a walk. Maybe you can't pray well when you're just sitting there. That's great. Maybe you need to uh, lay out, prostrate yourself before the Lord like the saints have done over the years. Maybe you need to go outside when the sun is setting and it's beautiful and you've been staring at a screen all day long, this far away from your face, but now the sun is setting and try it, Presbyterians. Let's see if you can do it. Cut the webbing that's between your arms that prevents you from raising your hands. Go outside, raise your hands in your backyard and say, 
All of creation is yours. And let your hands reside there for a minute. You're probably not used to that, but it changes something. Maybe you're struggling with a period of life or a sin. Open your hands and say, God, take it from me. Wash me. Make me clean. I I give to you my loneliness, my desire for a relationship that's different or just one at all. Maybe changing the posture will start to help us pray. The other thing that might help us pray is doing it three times a day. Let me say a couple things here. This is the typical way across world history that Christians have prayed. Uh, Morning, noon, and night. Psalm 5, for example, talks about that. Morning, noon, and night, I lay by request before the Lord. Typically in the early church, and we don't know this perfectly, but from what we can tell from scholars, in the early church, in the morning, everybody would pray the Lord's Prayer. And then at noon, everybody prayed with uh, what we call the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind. It goes on. And then at night, they would pray the Psalms. Uh, We see in Acts 3, we see in Acts 10, we see so many times Peter praying at noon. We see so many times Jesus going out at night to pray. And we're not big on trying to make you fit a certain mold with prayer, but we are talking a lot about prayer. And one thing I would suggest is this. Maybe if you're struggling with your prayer life, maybe if you're not even a believer, try to pray just the Lord's Prayer. You probably have it memorized from childhood. Try to to pray that before every meal. Most of us are kind of conditioned because we're Americans and this is an American thing, this is not a worldwide thing, to pray before every meal. Maybe we could actually do something more with that. Maybe you could set your phone alarm to buzz you at 7 o'clock every morning, and you pray just for 10 seconds. And you know what I have to do, what I've done for years, and this week has convicted me, I'm going to do it again. I don't know why I quit doing it. Um, For some reason, I quit. I used to write out uh, every twice a year, a prayer on a note card for the morning, for the afternoon, and for the evening. And it was just a written prayer. And I would just pray that prayer because sometimes you don't know what to pray. Now, I'm not going to, I still haven't memorized. I'm not going to tell you what they were because they're way too personal. But let me give you a flavor. I remember uh, the midday prayer that I would pull out, just a three-by-five card that I kept in my wallet. I would pull it out after I got done with lunch, before I came back to the office, and I would look at it and it would say something similar like this. God, it's halfway through the day, and I've completely forgotten about you. I'm doing absolutely everything in my own strength, and I am struggling right now to not feel overwhelmed insecure, and I need your help, and I need to trust by faith. My evening prayer, and again, I'm making these up. That's not what it actually was. That was pretty good, though. Y'all take notes. Uh, The evening prayer was a little bit more like this. There's so much I haven't done today, and there's so much that I've done that I'm not proud of, and I have a hard time sleeping. So may every breath tonight, even when I can't sleep, be an act of faith until you wake me up in the morning and be with my kids in these situations. 
That was so helpful to have a period of time. I would remember I would sometimes stop and pray before I got home. That transition, you're a young dad, that transition between uh, work and between uh, coming home, or you're a young mom, that transition between work and picking up your kids at daycare. I, Elizabeth, one time she called me and she said, could you please come inside? We have watched you drive by our house three separate times. Because I got into the neighborhood and I'm just like, I'm not ready, I can't do the young kid thing yet. So I kept driving by and she was like, we need help. Quit driving by. I wasn't listening to Dave Matthews. I was praying. God, I'm so overwhelmed. Once I cross this threshold of this door, it's game on. My kids don't care how my day went and I got to be present. So I got to pray and get myself there. And how did he pray? Look at what he says. He says he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. The, the plot was set. He knew he was caught. He knew this was a very specific, targeted persecution. He knew he was going to go to the lion's den. There was no doubt. Everybody knew what was happening. And he went and did it anyway. And what did he do? Wring his hands. He gave thanks. Why? Well, Ignatius was a bishop of Antioch at the end of first century AD. And he was captured for being a Christian, spreading the gospel. Christians tried to intervene for him because his uh, sentence was to be thrown into the lion's den, just like Daniel. This was under a Trajan, Emperor, Roman Emperor Trajan, who reigned 97 AD to about 150, 115 AD. And he stopped people from intervening, people that were high in government. He said, do not intervene for me. I want unity among the Christians. And then he wrote to a friend before he died, let me be fodder for wild beasts, food, because that's how I can get to God the quickest. Let me be food for the beasts, because that gets me the quickest into the arms of Jesus. He went on to say, I'm the wheat of God, and I'll be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I might be found to be the pure bread of God. That is a different way to live. Mark Laberton was a president of Fuller Seminary, and a couple years ago, you might remember, ISIS bombed, targeted, and bombed Egyptian Christians. And at Fuller Seminary, all the Americans came, they had a number of Egyptian Christians, and they came to the uh, Egyptians who were at the seminary there and said, we've got to have a memorial service for your friends who died. You know what the Egyptian Christians said? They said, what are you doing? No, we're not having a memorial service. Quote, what are you talking about? This is a cause for celebration. This is an acknowledgement of what it means to live as a Christian in a context where you have the privilege of martyrdom. So instead they had a service of worship and celebration and they had communion and thought and longed for how their brothers and sisters in Egypt who were bombed got to be with the Lord. It's just a different way to live, friends. To think that our lives are made for God to glorify him. 
All of these flags around this sanctuary right now are because we're having a missions conference next week. You need to come because you're not doing anything better with your lives. Just come to the missions conference. Give yourselves to the Lord. That was supposed to be a joke, not heavy-handed. Just relax. We're not taking, a, not taking attendance. But somebody to give us flag, and I don't know who, so I can say this uh, harshly because I don't know who it was. I would never do this if I know who it was. Somebody gave us flag for having a Chinese flag in here. Told our staff, you need to take that Chinese flag out of the sanctuary. Not on your life will I take that flag out of the sanctuary. Because this is not about America versus China. Do you know if you combine together the population of Europe and the population of North America, China still has 200 million more people than those combined? And let me just quote God when he talks to Jonah about the Ninevite city, when he said, should I not be concerned about those people and that great city? God himself called Nineveh a great city. Should I not be concerned about them? You know what happens if we bomb Beijing? They bomb us, we bomb them back. You know what happens? We kill some of the best poets, theologians, and Christians in the world right now if we do that. Some of the best minds theologically are not coming out of Philadelphia or LA or Chicago. They're coming out of Beijing, they're coming out of Taiwan, and they're coming out of Latin America because those Christians living in China are way far ahead on the maturity discipleship scale than we are. They're living in persecution. They've learned how to pray. And don't we want a religion that says every language, tribe, tongue, and nation and so pray when you think that you can't. And then quickly, pray when you assume it won't help. Uh, there's this beautiful picture here at the end where they enact this injunction. Then look at verse 14. The king is distressed. He had, he had grown in such affection for this little Hebrew exile. Because why? He had that excellent spirit in him. And he worked with, Daniel worked within the culture in such a way that the king himself was grieved. But the law of the Medes and Persians and the law of our cultures have no grace. So they said, we've got to enact the law. Do you know what happens in Christianity? In Christianity, with the law of God, you get grace. Everything that God asks you to do is for your benefit. And everything that God asks you not to do is for your benefit. But the rest of culture is going to try to enslave us. Enslave you to marketing, enslave you to social media, enslaving you to sex, enslaving you to uh, talking poorly about each other, enslaving you to withholding forgiveness, enslaving you to your guilt or to your shame or to your pride. What Christianity wants you to do is set you free from all of that. So even if you're in the middle of the lion's den, you're okay. And the only prayer recorded in this passage that talks about prayer is the prayer of the Babylonian king. How paradoxical and ironic is that? Who says in verse 16, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. It's the prayer of the king to ask God himself to intervene. Now, I stopped uh, the reading at verse 16, and here's why. Because I said, in this point, pray when you assume it won't help. We know how this story ends, if you grew up in church. 
Uh, I didn't, uh, but if most of you did. And if you grew up in the church, you know how this story ends. You know he gets freed. You know there's somebody else in the lion's den. Then we talk about it. We put it on uh, flannel graphs for our kids. And, you know, we talk about be a Daniel. You know, we got the whole gig in our head. We know how it ends. But think about it. Daniel gets, he's been praying. He's been faithful. He's in exile. God, he longs for Jerusalem. There's this persecution that's trumped up and not fair against him. He gets thrown into the lion's den. The stone rolls across. It's dark. He hears a little growl. Here's another growl. Can't, starts to try to pet him. Still can't even try to figure out where the growls are coming from. Don't you think at that moment, Daniel probably thought, has God left me? Has he altogether abandoned me? Is he ever going to say, after all I've done, after the way I've been so faithful? But I bet he was also, at that moment, praying. You know, the lions are a symbol of chaos. Isaiah chapter 11, Psalm 57, they're always a symbol of chaos, which is so interesting that we see lions approach in Christian literature and at the end of Scripture. So let me close here. Uh, you might remember the movie uh, Chronicles of Narnia. There's this white witch who has Edmund, this child, and he's sinned against the laws of the land, and she's not going to give him any grace. She's got to take his blood. That's the only way for him to be uh, set free is by uh, taking his blood. And she makes an agreement, the white witch was, to have Aslan, who's the God figure, be the substitute for Edmund. You know the story, I think. And in that story, she says this, you know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that for every treachery, I have the right to kill. And so that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Unless I have blood, as the law says, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. And so Aslan goes in, in the movie, this is in the book, in the movie, he goes in and he makes a deal, my life for his life. And he comes out, and the white witch in front of everybody says, how do I know you'll keep your promise? And if you remember, Aslan turns and roars at her. And everybody kind of like, okay, that's the answer. And because God was able to close the mouth of these lions and keep Daniel safe and be with him, actually, in the middle of that, Wherever you are in life, the presence of God is just a prayer away. And when you hear your heart telling you, you're not good enough, you've never been enough, you're too much of a sinner, you'll never amount to anything, uh, you, when your heart is given to fear and anxiety and guilt and shame and pride and your habitual sin that you've never been able to kick over and over and over again enslaves you, the Christian has to hear the roar of the lion, that he's actually accomplished everything. And what's so sweet about this text is that Daniel gets to know that God is with him. Maybe prayer is not about keeping us from the lion's den, which is how we usually use prayer. Just give me comfort. Keep me out of the lion's den. Maybe prayer is about realizing the sweetness of God 
when he's present with us in whatever den we find ourselves in. And hear his roar that he will always keep his promise to you. And then to know he's completely worth following. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now.